Amen. Thank you, men. Well, good morning, Mainstream. How are you all today? Good to see you all. It's nice to be in a space that is uh, each week uh, getting a little bit more finished and completed and excited to see what this uh, looks like in a few weeks. Um, but it is really a privilege to be able to, to stand before you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to go ahead and turn into the Old Testament to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 14 specifically is where we'll spend our time today. And as I, I go there, I just want to uh, encourage you guys um, this morning. I don't know about you, but I was greatly encouraged by the message that we we're able to hear this morning from Pastor John and just the wonderful reminder from Romans chapter 8. I don't know how long we're going to be in Romans 8. Um, <laughs> those of you that have been here, I was talking to, to Nate uh, beforehand, and he said Luke, I think, was seven years, so Romans 8 might be a year or two, but um, hey, that's wonderful. <laughs> I'd love to spend that much time in a text as beautiful as that. Well, uh, we're in Hosea 14, and I want to begin just by reading the text for us and then praying for us again and then diving into God's Word. Are you ready? We're there? All right. Hosea 14, 1 to 9 reads as follows. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us, and we will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has been turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel, and he will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon." His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. And those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine and his renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things and whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Lord, we come before you so grateful for the opportunity that we have to open your word yet again. We thank you for this book of Hosea that we can study together. We plead with you, Father, that you might give us your spirit, that spirit you might work to illuminate our minds, that our hearts might be convicted, that we might be transformed by the preaching of your word. And Lord, that we might actively leave this place as doers of the word and not hearers only. May it all ultimately be for the glory and the praise and the honor of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to begin our sermon this morning by talking about something a little unique. I want to talk about grudges. Grudges. You all know what a grudge is, right? Nod of the heads. Okay. Well, a grudge is defined, a dictionary definition, as a feeling of deep-seated resentment or ill will. Uh, it, the reality is grudges are a part of uh, the human experience, are they not? Well, I, I wanted to just learn a little bit more, so I, I did what every good seminary trained guy does. I went to Google, and I did a search on the internet just to find some various articles about grudges, many of them that spoke about different ways to deal with grudges, how to let them go. Um, I found uh, Twitter feeds, <laughs> wow, 
Twitter feeds full of people listing their current and long-standing grudges. I even found an 82-year-old man. This is a Guinness world record. An 82-year-old man who grew out the nails on his left hand to a combined length of 30 feet because of a grudge he held against a teacher when he was 14. 66 years of growing out his nails. I know, gross. <laughs> there were only a couple, these are only a couple of the many web pages and the blogs and the articles and the YouTube videos that, that some way spoke of or demonstrated human grudges. And honestly, on a personal level, we all uh, understand this in some measure, don't we? We've likely all dealt with grudges in some manner, in some way, right? Perhaps it's a friend that we've had in our past who would not forgive a wrong committed or a family member who we've just had a really hard time reconciling with. Um, Grudges are a reality, and, and all of these situations point back to the same basic issue. Grudges really are nothing more than man's unwillingness to forgive. And isn't it true that human forgiveness can be fickle? Well, unfortunately, our own human failure, our own inadequacy paired with our human experience can sometimes shape the way that we understand God and his character. We may unknowingly limit God, specifically minimizing the extent of his forgiveness because of what we observe in others, right? If man is so unable to to forgive and to put aside grudges, then maybe God's the same way. But we must never forget this morning as we begin that God is not like us, right? Isaiah 55, I love what that text says in verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In our text this morning, in Hosea 14, we're going to see clearly that God is not like our friends, not like our relatives, not like our coworkers, not like you and I. God doesn't hold grudges. God is a willing God, willing to and able both to forgive sinners who return to him with repentant hearts and to pursue us with great restoring love. We're going to see a God who welcomes repentant sinners to himself and who per- pursues us as a faithful husband pursues his bride. So turn, if you haven't already been there, you should be there, but Hosea 14, we're going to see this morning three actions of God that demonstrate his restoring love for his own. And ultimately, my goal is that it should encourage us to return to him. And I just want to lay them out for you. We're going to see in verse one, the first portion of verse one, God's passionate appeal to return. God's passionate appeal to return. Then in the latter half of verse 1 through verse 3, we'll see God's clear instructions to repent. And then lastly, in verses 4 to 8, God's loving action to respond. Now, uh, as we begin, we have to recognize, of course, we're in chapter 14. And if you, you don't have to be a mathematician to realize that there's 13 chapters that have come before that. And uh, we, we can't understand chapter 14 if we don't at least do the due diligence of looking at the rest of the book quickly, getting at least a basic background and context for the book. So I want to do that. Go ahead and flip back to chapter one, to the first chapter of Hosea. And I want to just quickly go through and give us a little bit of a, of a background to what's going on. Hosea 1.1 tells us that Hosea ministered during the eighth century BC. If you look at the text, it says, the word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king 
of Israel. Now, this first verse indicates really the chronological boundaries of Hosea's ministry. Roughly, he ministered from about 755 to about 710 BC. Uh, This means that Hosea ministered actually through the lives of 10 different kings, four uh, kings in Judah, which are named there in verse one, and six kings of Israel, only one of them mentioned there, Jeroboam II. We also know from this context that uh, Hosea would have been a contemporary of the prophets Amos, uh, Isaiah, and Micah. So that helps us to, to gather a little bit of an understanding of this book. We also know from the context that, uh, like Amos, Hosea's message was pointed directly at the northern tribes, the northern kingdom. And those, of course, were the ten tribes of Israel that separated from Judah after the time of Solomon and his reign. So you might ask, okay, so what was life like in the 8th century BC in Israel? Because this is what Hosea is talking to. Well, one commentator said it well by using the famous words of the English author Charles Dickens uh, when he said this, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Hosea's ministry began at the end of a period of material prosperity and luxury. There was really national security and apparent freedom under Jeroboam II's reign over Israel. But at the same time, there was also a great moral corruption that was evident Uh, or was evidence of Israel's spiritual decline and their lack of faithfulness to Yahweh and his covenant. Uh, We learn in 753, Jeroboam II died, and upon his death, anarchy and chaos really broke broke out. Um, One way, one fact of this is the evidence that of those six kings of Israel that, that reigned during the time of Hosea's ministry, four of the six were assassinated by their successors. So you can imagine if that were the world that we were in, if let's say the last four presidents were assassinated by the guy in office, I would say that's anarchy. There was political upheaval, there was moral degradation, and what Hosea speaks most to is that there was spiritual adultery. This is the climate that Hosea focuses his prophecy, and he focuses on the moral bankruptcy of Israel and ultimately the Lord's imminent judgment that was going to come very soon. Now, like Amos and Isaiah and Micah, Hosea's prophecies point to this coming wrath, this coming judgment, ultimately to the exile that would come to this wayward people. But what makes this book so unique and why for some of you this might be, it's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, um, I think in large measure because of the poignancy by which this indictment is brought. Because if you were to read all the way through Hosea, and we don't have time to do that, God actually uses Hosea's marriage as a vivid illustration, as a picture of the people of Israel and their relationship with with him. God calls Hosea, his prophet, to marry a wife of harlotry, a, a woman who would commit adultery against her prophet husband. Look back to the text with me in verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. Chapters one through three chronicle this arrangement and actually show that Hosea obeys. Uh, In verse 3, we learn that Hosea takes this wife, Gomer is her name, the daughter of Diblaim, and she she conceives and bears children. It's interesting, the children have these unusual names you might be familiar with, right? 
And these aren't just names that uh, Hosea came up with. These are names that God gives as another vivid picture of his judgment against the people. Look at the first name in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. Now, you don't maybe see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, Jezreel and Israel are almost the exact same word. It's literally one letter difference in a couple vowel markings. The reality is I wonder if Hosea heard the name and first thought, oh, 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 Israel, all right, that's a good name. I'll name him Israel. And God says, no, Jezreel. Israel means God contends or God perseveres. Jezreel means scattered. So God says, no, name him Jezreel, which is really speaks to a metaphorical uh, scattering of God's people among the nations. And we see that and know that at the tail end of verse four. Why? Name him this because I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Here God uses the name of Hosea's son as a prophecy of the coming destruction that would be realized in the coming years when Assyria would invade in 722 and destroy the northern kingdom. Could you imagine the poor son? who's got the name Jezreel and carries that around as a a marker. But Jezreel wasn't the only one. Soon after, we learn that in verse 6, she conceived again, Gomer did, and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said, this time name her Lo-Ruhamah. Lo-Ruhamah literally means no mercy or no compassion. And why does God say that? Look in verse 6, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But he's not done. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, verse 8, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said again, name him Loami. Loami means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. These three names of Hosea's children speak to the sad state of God's chosen people who were to be scattered by God, who would no longer experience his mercy and compassion, only his judgment, who were no longer to be called God's people, but instead would experience only the wrath and judgment of God. Yet, the beauty of this text is look at verse 10 and 11. Even in the depth of this first indictment against the people, we see a preview of what we're going to read in chapter 14. God's amazing restoring love. It's already pictured. Look at verse 10 and 11. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will the day of Jezreel be. There's already a promise of restoration proclaimed by God. And and the rest of these chapters, if we had time, I would just read through them. Sometimes I wonder if the best thing I could do is just get up here and read the book of Hosea right? Uh, Then you would know I wouldn't make any mistakes, right? (laughs) But the beauty here is that there is a a, a clear prophecy through the rest of chapters two and three that chronicles Gomer's unfaithfulness, that parallels the unfaithfulness of Israel, this vivid picture. Every time the people saw Hosea and Gomer, there was a picture of their unfaithfulness. And every time they saw Hosea's jealous, relentless, pursuing love for his wife, there was a picture of of their God's faithfulness. It's a faithful husband. Now, this culminates, if you turn with me to the end of chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, with a judgment restoration passage. 
in which Hosea writes as follows. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. A day was coming when all of that would be removed. The temple would be gone. There would be nothing of Israel's uh, holy set-apartness left. But verse 5 says, Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. The prophecy is really clear. Israel would be scattered. They would be removed from the land and from God's favor, but not forever. God's restoring love would one day draw them back and they would return and they would seek the Lord, their God and David, their King. Now the rest of this verses or chapters four through 13 continue and follow out really a series of judgment salvation cycles where God describes the coming judgment against Israel and simultaneously reinforces his desire and plans for them to return to him. So that leads us back to chapter 14. Our introduction is done, but here we find in chapter 14, verse one, God's first action that demonstrates his restoring love for his own. And and it's this, as I said before, verse one, God's passionate appeal to return. Read the text. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Chapter 14 uh, begins rather quickly with an appeal from God for them to return, for Israel to return. And he uses an imperative verb here, and that combined with the brevity of the expressions in verses one through three really points to or speaks of the urgency of the moment. This is not a suggestion, it's a command. This is not a slow turn God's expecting, like a large cruise ship in ocean ocean, in open ocean, right? That's not what he's saying here. He's saying return now, turn around now. The verb here used for return is, is very common throughout the Old Testament, used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. In our book alone, it's used 22 times in 14 chapters and four times in our chapter here. It, it has the, uh, can be translated a variety of ways, but typically carries the sense of turning back or turning away from, abandoning, returning. Note as well that that verb is combined with a direct object. Return where? Return to whom? To Yahweh, their God. And this is important because it speaks of the personal nature of the covenant-keeping God of Israel. He doesn't say return to El, to God. He says return to Yahweh, your God. Their repentance, their returning, the, the nature of that return is a call for all of Israel to come back to their God, to come back to the original relationship with Yahweh that's been theirs since Mount Sinai. Like a jealous husband seeking the affections of his bride, God calls out to them and says, return. And isn't this the character of our God, not only here in this text, but throughout the scriptures? God is one who's quick to call us back to himself, who's compassionate, who's merciful. God's the one who initiates, isn't he? Several texts uh, came to my mind. 1 John 4.19 says very clearly, we love because he first loved us. He's the initiator. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 reminds us to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he is near. Right there, the indication is the fact that he is near. He's near to us. It says, call upon him while he is near and let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. 
and let them return to the Lord and he will have compassion on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is the nature of our God, isn't it? He's eager for us to return to him. And so in verse one, we see just laid out quickly, God's passionate appeal for the people of Israel to return. But there's more in in the following portions of verses one and into verse three, we see secondly, God's clear instruction to repent. God doesn't just say, return to me and everything's fine, right? He could have done that. Verse one, return to me, O Israel. It's a command, come, that's it. No, but there's more. There's more. Look at this. What we see is God in these verses, uh, I think, describes genuine repentance by noting three aspects of what true genuine repentance looks like, what the truly repentant appear as. And the first one is this, the truly repentant recognize the source of trouble. That's in 1B. God says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Why? For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Israel maybe didn't know this. I think some probably did. The source of their stumbling was their sin, their iniquity. And Hosea throughout the book presents the sin of Israel as great and heinous. Throughout the book, it's depicted, as we said from the beginning, as harlotry, as adultery. I mean, I can't think of of a, a more stark representation of disloyalty than the adultery of a spouse with their spouse. Can you? Can you think of something? I, I was uh, one of uh, my professors, Dr. John Street, who's had the privilege of counseling many, many, many people, has often said that the hardest cases to deal with are cases of adultery because of the level of, of, of loyalty that has been just thrown asunder, destroyed, wrecked. This person that you trust fully has been disloyal. They've let you down. They've turned against you. And the best way to see this is just to look through the book quickly. Turn back to chapter (coughs) 4. Excuse me. Turn back to chapter 4. And I just want to show you a couple texts that indicate just the stark language that Hosea uses to speak of this harlotry. Look in verses 1 and 2. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. He, He lays out the charges here against Israel. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is instead swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Look down a few more verses in verse 5 and 6. It says that they are destroyed, that they stumble because of lack of knowledge, that they've rejected knowledge. They've forgotten the law of their God. Turn uh, just ahead to verses 13 and 14. We see the, the total nature of their sin and their guilt. Their daughters play the harlot. Their brides commit adultery. Their men themselves go apart with harlots. Later in Hosea 7, it says they're all adulterers. Turn to chapter 5, verses 4 through 7. We see that their deeds are so vile and that they're so given over to them that doesn't allow them to return to their God. Their deeds separate them from him. They have a spirit of adultery, a spirit of harlotry within them that they don't know the Lord. They, they've dealt treacherously with their God and he's withdrawn from them. One more text, chapter seven, verses 13 to 16. I want to read this in full. 
He says, woe to them for they've strayed from me. Destruction is theirs for they have rebelled against me and I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me and they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail upon their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. Hosea says clearly they've transgressed God's covenant. They've rebelled against his law. They've forgotten their maker. They've forsaken their God. They've plowed wickedness. They've reaped injustice. And they're bent on turning from God and refusing to turn to him. It said there in our text, right? They turn, but not upward. Turn to other things. One commentator, I think, summarized it well when he said, the ultimate sin of Israel was not just a breach of the law. It was an offense against the divine person, the husband of chapters one through three, the parent of chapter 11. Thus, their iniquity was against God. Israel was the unfaithful wife. Israel was the harlot. Israel's sin was adultery against their God. And back to our text, we realize as well that this sin had led to something, hadn't it? What's the text say? For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The word stumbling here does not mean what I thought of when I first heard stumbling. I think of stumbling, and if you've ever spent any time around me at all, I can be a bit klutzy. And I've tripped on more cracks than I, than I care to admit. That's not what he's talking about here. This is, not, this is not stumbling because you lose your balance. The word here speaks of total destruction. Hosea says in other places, in chapter 9 and chapter 13, that the days of punishment have come, that retribution has come, that God will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. And I can't move on without looking at verse 15 and 16 of chapter 13. Look at it with me. Look what he says. God says, Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up, and it will and it will plunder his treasury of every precious article. He's speaking of Assyria, who's going to come and destroy the the kingdom of, of Israel. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. And listen to this. They will fall by the sword, and their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. The judgment that was to come upon the people of Israel at the hands of Assyria, a people raised up by God to bring judgment upon them, the judgment was going to be total destruction. The stumbling that they'd experienced was going to be total destruction. Israel was headed for this end. And God says, as we've heard in verse 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Reminds me of uh, Jonah chapter 3. You guys know the story of Jonah. Um, Jonah goes (laughs) begrudgingly. Oh, I pulled that word in there for you, begrudgingly. Um, Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh. And he cries out, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And what does Nineveh do? They repent. They repent. And God relents. And Jonah gets angry. But they repent. That is such evidence that this is the God that we serve, right? Here's the key to repentance. From the beginning, repentance includes recognizing the source of our trouble. And that is our own sin. Our iniquity. Repentance only only happens as we recognize that our stumbling 
is because of our sin and that we turn away from our sin and instead turn to God. Secondly, we see the truly repentant speaks the words of confession. Look at verses two and three. What's he say? Take words with you and return to the Lord. Here Hosea calls them to return to God again. And this time he says, go to God and speak to him. This is talking about prayer. It's the same word return that we had in verse one, but now it's changed. It's in the second person plural. So this time the emphasis, rather than being on the nation of Israel as a whole, is now focused on the individual person, not the collective. Each individual is called in verse two to return to Yahweh and take words of confession with you. This is evidence of God's kindness here, right? Because he, he not only tells them how to come to him in repentance, but he even gives them words to say. Look at the words. Notice the first words he tells them. He says, say to him, say to Yahweh, take away all iniquity. Take away all iniquity. Repentance always starts with a a humble understanding that our sin has separated us from a holy God. And the only way our relationship can be reconciled or renewed is if God forgives that iniquity, all of it. And this is where the repentant attitude takes action, isn't it? This is the point of confession. It's confessing our sins. Proverbs 28, 13 teaches us that he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. We see this all over the Old Testament, right? The, the example that comes to my mind often is David, right? We know if, if, if somebody uh, blew it, right? There's a guy in the Old Testament that blew it. David's that guy, isn't he? I mean, I can't think of anybody else in the Old Testament that had so far to fall and fell all the way. But what does David say when he pins the Psalm in Psalm 32? David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, Yahweh, to God, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and listen to this, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We know from the New Testament John writes that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we not? Confession is a necessary component of genuine repentance. But there's more. He says more. He says, take words with you, return to the Lord, say, take away all iniquity, and then, and receive us graciously. Here, the repentant repentant individual must realize that apart from God's grace, there can be no forgiveness, there can be no salvation. That's how God always acts, right? He always receives, he always accepts those who come with a sincere and contrite heart. Does he not? Now, for me, I I wrote down in my notes as I came to that, but that's so hard, right? This is the major roadblock that we face, isn't it? Is that by nature, we're not naturally contrite or humble. At least I can speak for myself. I'm not. It's a challenge. One of the commentators that I read said this, and I I loved it, so I had to put it in. He said, there's two things regarding repentance that are easy to do. Repent of someone else's sins and repent of sin generally. Oh, God, uh, forgive me of my sins. I know even as a parent, that's something I I deal with my kids all the time. How to be specific, right? But he continues and says, however, to repent of one's own specific sin is so difficult that it's actually impossible apart from the grace of God. And I read that and I said, well, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. It's impossible apart from the grace of God. Anything done without faith is sin. Everything apart from God's grace is impossibility. 
That's the point here. The point here is that we must depend upon God. Right? I think of all these texts that flood into my mind. Romans 2, 4, that reminds us that it is the kindness of our God that leads us to repentance. In Acts chapter 11 and in 2 Timothy 2, we learn that, that it is God who grants repentance that leads to life. It's a gift. Even our repentance is a gift, a grace gift given to us by God. So the good news is, while I come with this major roadblock and saying, I'm not humble enough, I'm not contrite enough to do this, God says, that's all right. I'm gracious enough to help you make the way. I'm the one that will strengthen you by my spirit. Psalm 51, 17 tells us this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isn't it good just to know that God looks upon the humble and the contrite with favor, that he's near to us that are brokenhearted? Isn't that a good thing that that's the God we serve? There's an illustration uh, from the New Testament in Luke chapter 18. Um, I had the chance to preach on this text before here, and it's a text that always comes back to me, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Right? If you remember, the Pharisee stands in the temple and says his prayer and recites all of the things that he does all of the reasons why he's better than that tax collector over there. And then the tax collector who stands far off, unwilling even to lift his eyes up to heaven, beating his breast says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And actually says, the sinner. That's the, that's the heart that God's looking for. And it's a heart that's motivated by his grace. But there's another phrase that we see. Receive us graciously, end of verse two, that we may present the fruit of our lips. And I love this. I love this portion, right? Only as our sins are forgiven, only as we're accepted graciously by God, can we truly enjoy fellowship with Him, right? right? There's no reconciliation if we are not forgiven. We must be forgiven to enjoy fellowship with God. It's our forgiveness, it's God's gracious acceptance that causes us in turn to joyfully praise Him. I mean, that's the beauty. That's what he's saying here. It's, it's the same thing as Psalm 51, 14 that says, deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Deliver me from my iniquity. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Right? That, that's the reality. This is what happens in our lives. I know it's been in mine. When we have unrepentant sin, we find ourselves unable to worship God with freedom and joy. Right? That sin interrupts our communion with God. But how sweet how sweet is the fellowship that we enjoy, the praises that come from the lips of those who recognize and know the rich forgiveness of God. The truly repentant recognize the source of their trouble. They see that as their sin. They speak the words of confession. And then look at verse three, the truly repentant trust the character of God. God continues graciously to put words in their mouth. And he does this, he put words of genuine repentance in their mouth and says that they should no, no longer trust in these three things. And by listing these three things, he's articulating what Hosea has done throughout this book. These are areas that they have trusted in, right? That's the point. What's he say? He says, first, Assyria will not save us. Say this to God, Assyria will not save us. They were no longer to trust in other nations. And, and the book of Hosea has over and over again demonstrated the fact that until this point, Israel had consistently turned to Assyria and Egypt, to other nations. These were in chapter 8, verse 9, it says, these were their hired lovers to those whom they had made a covenant. They had trusted in 
the might, the power of the nations around them rather than God. There's more. He says, we will not ride on horses. Now, my wife, she would be like, what? (laughs) I love riding horses. He's not saying don't ride horses. What he's getting at, again, is that they were trusting in their military might, right? At this time in the ancient Near East, the real sign, the preeminent sign of military progress was horses and chariots, right? And if you had great horses and, and mighty chariots, right? You were the big boss on, uh, you know, in the neighborhood. And so he's saying, don't trust in your own military might. And this is not new. Psalm 33 tells us that the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, and nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. They had trusted in their own might. They had trusted in the nations around them rather than the Lord. But there's more. Nor will we say again to the work of our hands, or say our God to the work of our hands. They were no longer to trust in their idols and their false gods. We know if you've read any of the Old Testament, you know that idolatry was an issue for Israel from the beginning, right? I mean, literally from the base of Mount Sinai, they made a golden calf. And and to be honest, my namesake, Aaron, (laughs) right? That's one of the most disappointing texts. Right? It just came out of the fire, really? <laughs> but the truth of it is, from that very point, they worshipped. They either worshipped God in the wrong way, as that case may be, or they worshipped other gods. Throughout their he- history, we see this over and over again in the Old Testament, that they worship false gods. They depend upon those what, that are not gods. They bow before idols made of wood, stone, silver, gold, and they expect them to provide for them. And God just says here, you've trusted in the lies of false religion rather than me. I'm the one that can care for you and provide for you. So say, you will cease to trust in the work of your hands. And Hosea says instead at the end of verse three, instead of trusting in these things, in nations, in your own might, in false gods, do what? Trust in the character of God. Look at it. For in you, Yahweh, in you, God, the orphan finds mercy. I mean, this is what we've been talking about before, but it's so clear here. God is merciful. He cares for the fatherless. He's the God of the weak and the God of the vulnerable. And what we see here is that true repentance only comes as we recognize our true place of helplessness and dependence. The point here is not, oh yeah, you just care for the, the, the orphans. The point is, Israel, you're an orphan. The point is, all of us, are orphans. That's his point. When we realize that we have nowhere to turn but to God, and then we do turn to God, what do we find? We find a God who is compassionate and gracious, who's merciful, who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I would just say as a quick aside, this is still an issue for us today in America, isn't it? There is still the problem that we find ourselves trusting in ourselves rather than God. Yeah, we may not have the little wooden idols, you know, in our homes. I hope none of you do. Um, But there are still gods and little idols that dominate our lives and our time and our money, are there not? Uh, If you look back at one quick verse, chapter 13, verse 6, it says, As they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me. If I were to say what text points to America, that's America. 
satisfied with what we have, and rather than giving glory and honor to the God who provides all good gifts, we become satisfied and we forget Him. But the truly repentant individual recognizes the source of their problem, their sin, speaks words of confession, and trusts the character of God. And all of this shows us that true repentance takes action, right? I don't have time to go there, but you guys know the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. I love it because it's an evidence of repentance in action. Zacchaeus comes to saving faith. He's confronted with Jesus Christ, right? He climbs down from the sycamore tree. He goes home. And what's he tell Jesus? He says, I'm going to give away half of my possessions and I'm going to, to give four times, fourfold to any that I have defrauded. And Jesus's response is amazing. He says, truly, salvation has come to this house. Why? Is that because his repentance, right? Was it his penance like the Catholic church teaches? Was it his penance that, that drew favor with God? No, no. It wasn't that he, we do good deeds in order to return to God and make our repentance acceptable. It's because God has already drawn us to himself and we've turned to him in faith that we do good deeds out of love for him and out of a desire to walk in godliness. That's what he means. So I would stop here and ask you, what about you? Does this characterize repentance in your life? Does repentance look like this? We've seen God's passionate appeal to return, his clear instruction to repent. Lastly, verses four to eight, God's loving action to respond. Uh, Here the speaker changes to Yahweh in verse four, and we see God's restoring love really on display. He, He uses three imperfect verbs through this section, and they're full of promise and hope. He, he basically declares what he will do and what he will be like in response to their return. Uh, this, is, this is a promise for uh, ultimately for Israel and originally in the text. This is a, a text that every um, true believer, every true Israelite looks forward to the day when God will in the millennial kingdom bring all this to pass. But I think there is a parallel even for us believers to recognize that as we return to God, right? We experience these same things. Notice, notice them quickly. First, he heals completely. Look at that. It says, I will heal their apostasy. Israel's iniquity was like a terminal cancer. It's something that needed healing and only God could provide that healing. Not Assyria, not Egypt, not all these other things that they had depended upon. And notice that the direct object of the healing is apostasy. The word literally means turning away. I I think that's pretty amazing, right? He says in verse one, return. And when he speaks of their iniquity, he now gives it, gives it a little definition. He says that their apostasy is their turning away. Israel didn't just need the healing of wounds of judgment. He needed the healing of the cause of that judgment. He needed to get to the root, right? He needed Israel's harlotry, their waywardness, their rebellion. That's what needed to be healed. And we understand this well, just from medical, uh, just thinking from a medical perspective, right? Some of you know my son, Austin, who's 10 now, but was five when we came here five years ago. It's incredible. Um, we'll get out of here one of these days, <laughs> maybe. Um, but Austin, before, a week before we came to seminary, he fell and cut his knee and went and got 16 stitches. And I was like, yes, you know, good stitches, good story to tell. Well, within a couple of days, it turned into an infection and a really bad infection that would put us in the hospital for 30 days and seven different surgeries. And instead of 16 stitches, 66 stitches. And if you ever get a chance to see Austin, just have him pull up his right leg, his right, not his leg, his right (laughs) pant. (laughs) 
and he could show you all the train tracks that, that go on his leg. But what's interesting about that particular story is I remember, you know, the first week was so traumatic because the doctors were treating symptoms. He was swelling up. He was getting really sick. There was fevers and things like that. They're treating symptoms, but all the while they knew we don't know what the cause is. And it wasn't until they discovered the root cause, what the infection was, that they could, they could attack that and they could provide treatment specifically for that. That's exactly what is being said here. This is what God promises. I won't just deal with the symptoms. I'll deal with the root, the apostasy. Israel's problem is they turned away from God and God said, I'm going to take that out. I'm going to no longer let you turn away from me. And we know this from Jeremiah 31, right? The new covenant, which teaches that he puts a new heart within them. And they no longer seek after others. They seek after that of their God. He puts the law upon their heart. This is how God heals us. He, he deals with the heart issues. He deals with the basic central portion of who we are. And he puts in us new desires so that we won't turn away from him, but instead we'll turn towards him. He heals completely. Second, it says that I'll love them freely. He loves freely. He says, I love them freely and my anger is turned away from them. This is amazing because not only would Yahweh heal them from their apostasy, not only would take away their sin and their iniquity, but he'll restore their relationship. You realize God could have said, yeah, yeah, you're all forgiven. Now go live over there. But God says, I will heal you and I will bring you back in relationship with me. That's the amazing thing of the love of God. This is a love, of course, that is full of initiative and joy. That's why it says freely. God does this voluntarily. It's the love of God. Even what we heard this morning uh, from Romans chapter eight, there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus, is there? The God so loved, God so loved us, those that would believe that he gave his only son. It's an amazing love. And I, and I just want to stop real quickly and look at Hosea 11 with me, verse eight. One of my favorite sections in all of Hosea. In verse 7, God says that my people are bent on turning from me. And then in verse 8, you get this expression of love. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those were two cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart is turned over within me and all my compassions are kindled. I just want to caution us because I think sometimes in our desire to maintain God's transcendence that we neglect, and I think this happens particularly in places where we're well taught, in a desire to keep from having a sappy view of God's love, we diminish the reality of that love. If God's love does not overwhelm you, you don't understand it. Oh, how he loves you and me. It's as simple as that. And, and in our attempts to try to make sure that, well, we want to make sure that we don't make God like us. Please, please, please don't diminish this love that we see here. See here my heart is turned over within me. My compassions are kindled for you. God is this kind of a God who pursues us, who loves us like this. But there's more because of time, I got to keep going. What's it say again? It says, he blesses abundantly. I will be like the dew to Israel 
Now, this is interesting because in the rest of, of this text in chapter 6 and chapter 13, he uses this analogy of dew, but he talks about dew that goes away early, that disappears quickly, that evaporates. Um, in those places, he's talking about the fact that Israel's loyalty was like dew. It quickly disappeared. But here, God is saying that his loyalty to his people is lavish. It's a lavish blanket on the land. It provides great blessing. And uh, Trish and I have the opportunity to go to Israel in May. We're super excited. And I have the chance to be in a class right now that we're learning about the geography of Israel. And one thing I find fascinating is Israel is a land that depends upon rain. And there's large seasons when there is no rain. And what do they depend upon then? The dew. Heavy blanket of dew that comes in and provides the moisture necessary to, to do what this text says the moisture necessary to to have them blossom like the lily, to take root like the cedars of Lebanon, shoots that will sprout and beauty like the olive tree and fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who will live in his shadow and again raise grain and blossom like the vine and their renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. This is what we see. God speaks of this dew that brings freshness and stability and vigor. And this is the picture of the God that we serve who does the same thing for us. Don't stop considering and enjoying the amazing blessedness of God. Remember that every good gift comes from our Father. So when you go home today and you sit down to eat food, rejoice in the blessedness that He's provided. When you have a chance to spend time with your family, enjoy the blessedness of our God. Never forget that He is a God who blesses abundantly and who cares perfectly. Verse 8, O Ephraim, What more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. God's the source of all care. God's the source of all fruitfulness. What the people of Israel sought in Baal and the other gods could only be found in Yahweh. They could only find it in their covenant-keeping God. And that is exactly the same for you and I today, isn't it not? This is our God. This is our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose restoring love is eager and quick to receive the repentant sinner. He's not like us. His forgiveness is not like our forgiveness. His compassion and mercy is not like ours. He's long-suffering. He's kind, but don't miss this. I want to close with this. God's loving response to Israel in the midst of their sin is mirrored in his love for us displayed through Jesus Christ. He's a God who pursues his own. And we know this from scripture, don't we? Romans 3, we heard it this morning. There's none that seeks after God, none that are righteous. We've all turned aside. We've all sinned. We've gone our own way. Yet the scriptures tell us that God is rich in mercy and love. And he takes sinners who are dead in their transgressions, who are left in their iniquities, who are left in their apostasy. And he makes us alive together with Christ. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. While we were unfaithful and rebellious and adulterous, Christ died for us. We see in this text that God has given us a passionate appeal to return, that we've seen his clear instruction to repent and his loving action to respond. But Let's finish in verse nine. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. 
there's really only two options left for every single one of us in this room. There's only two options on how we respond to the message of Hosea, right? One is remain a stubborn rebel who rejects the word of the Lord, who stumbles over our iniquity and bears the wrath of God for eternity in hell. That's your first choice. And in a room of this size, I can only imagine that there's someone in this room that you don't know the Lord. There's a second choice. You can humbly repent of your sins, put your trust fully in Christ, who takes God's wrath upon himself in your place, and you can experience the amazing restoring love of God. So I would just say this clearly. You might be out there. What's stopping you from repenting and turning to God right now? Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait till tomorrow. If you've never truly repented of your sin, if you've never truly trusted in Christ, I call you right now to return to the Lord. I command you to do that. God has given you clear instruction. Don't wait another minute. For those those of us in here that have trusted in Christ, I call you to action as well. Continue to pursue Christ in this manner. Perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Press on toward the goal of Christ's likeness. Let us spur on one another to love and good deeds. Let us exult in the glorious love of our Father, our Father who is a faithful God, who loves even his faithless bride. That's the God of Hosea, and that's the God that we should worship and exult in today. Let me close our time in prayer. Father, there is really no way that we can fully comprehend and understand the significance of your love for us. God, there is absolutely no reason in my own understanding and ability to comprehend why you would condescend, your son would condescend and come and become a man, sinful flesh of man, that he'd take on humanity and live a perfect sinless life, that he would go to the cross and that he would die in our stead that we might be reconciled to you. But it's what the scriptures teach. And so we rejoice, we praise you, and we exult in you, knowing that, God, this is exactly what you've done. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your restoring love. Thank you for your pursuit of us. God, may we turn to you. May we, in repentance, be those who trust fully in you, this day and every day afterward. And Lord, if there be any in this room who don't know you, I pray, God, may you by your spirit do work in their hearts. Even now, they may come to saving faith and they may know you, the restoring God, the faithful God. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.